to you all that I have doubts about the things of God sometimes. Um, I get discouraged and get delusioned towards the things of God and even towards the people of God. And I would guess, as Mr. Lennon's song says, that I'm not the only one. And there might be some other people in here that have that too, that you have times of doubt and discouragement and disillusionment towards God and his people and the institutions of his people and all those things. So what do you do when your experience doesn't match what you're seeing? What you're understanding and the promise. When, you, when you, you, you look at the Bible and you read the Bible and you see the promises of God in the Bible and you pray and claim those promises, but then your experience isn't the same thing. Or when what you've heard God has done for others is different than what he might have done for you. Or what you've heard he's done in the past, he hasn't done for you. And that might be on a family level. You know, you hear these people like, man, how did you stay married for 60 years? And they're like, oh, you know, we just prayed together before we went to bed, you know, and we didn't go to bed mad. If you do that, you'll be fine. And then you're like, okay, we did that. And we still argue. Like, how's that work? You know, that didn't happen. Or, uh, man, how did, pastor, how did you build this, see God build this great big church that you that did? Well, I just started preaching in Genesis, and 30 years later, I got to Revelation, and we had 3,000 people. I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, we're halfway through, we're finishing up Malachi, and what, you know, what happened, you know? And you have a different experience, or whatever it might be. It's like, well, you know, I thought I had my kids in church, I did this, and my experience is different than what these other people are doing. I mean, these other people sent their kids to VBS, and they came back saints. I sent mine to all this stuff, and they, they're still hoodlums, right? They're so much like their mother. I mean, their father, um, right? You know, or what, and what do you do when you're understanding and what you're seeing or what you've heard isn't matching what you're, you know what happens? We get skeptical towards God. And then our, 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 uh, his promises, they grow cold. And so our worship then grows cold and our hearts either become half-hearted towards God and even bitter towards God. And that's where the Bible, so have you ever been there? Is anyone else with me here that you have times like that? Well, good. Then the book of Malachi is relevant for you. Because as someone said, I read in a study Bible, that Malachi is a catechism or a teaching or recitation for times of doubt and disappointment. So when you go through times of doubt and disappointment, the book of Malachi is a wonderful one. So when we're tempted to break faith with our covenant God or something like that, and, and so really what Malachi is trying to do is change our thinking, the people of God's thinking about their covenant relationship that they have with God. And really, all of, I mean, that, that is like the, the essence of discipleship in every struggle we have is changing our thinking about our covenant relationship with God. Now, our covenant relationship with God in the new covenant it comes through the gospel in Christ. And so, as, as one writer said, that right thinking in the gospel produces right li- living in the gospel. And often, most of my struggles in life is where I'm not thinking right about how the gospel pertains to what I'm going through at that moment and what, what's going on. And so, um, the God's people, Israel, had grown discouraged and 
And when they've gotten grown discouraged, they get half-hearted and they start looking around. And then you start looking around and you think, well, wait. The the guy over there that didn't sacrifice to serve God looks like he's got more stuff and he's happier than me. Well, I'll just start doing life like him, right? And so we compromise with the world. And and Israel's looking at other nations. And you're like, well, they got this and they have that. And, And so they start thinking like the pagans and 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 Malachi is kind of coming in saying quit thinking like the pagans and you know we we never get over that right the the prophets of God have to come to the people of God and say quit thinking like the pagans um remind us of what God has for us and so um Malachi confronts these ideas, and I, we mentioned this at the beginning of the message in, in Romans, considering the goodness and severity of God. And so Malachi confronts Israel with these two ideas about God being good and loving and setting his affection on them and his severity or his wrath and the judgment to come. And there's a positive and a negative to that. And, and so they were thinking wrong about that. And so they're thinking Okay, and so go back to the context here of Malachi. So uh, Israel, because of their sins, their ancestors were exiled to Babylon. And they spent a long time there serving in the stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and then some come back and others stay in the stories of Esther and the things going on there in the, the exile. And, and then some come back. Uh, Zerubbabel lets and Ezra comes and they come and then Nehemiah comes later and they, they've set up the temple, they've set up the altar, they've, then they come and they build the wall and, and, and all this is going on and some time goes by and about 80 years go by which is what, what's going on with Malachi. And Malachi's writing and they've, so they've, they've come back, the promises that God's going to bring this, all, all these promises, but they're still there and they have the temple, but it's like, yeah, it's not as great as the old one that Solomon had. You know, this isn't great. And we're a lot smaller than we used to be and we're dwindled down. And where are the promises of this God? All these messianic promises and all, all these things. And they're not seeing that. So they start to doubt God and they get skeptical towards God and they get half-hearted in their thing. And they're thinking, God, you've let us down. And they're disillusioned and they're discouraged. And Malachi, as it were, takes a mirror and says, hey, God has not let you down. In fact, you're the ones that have let God down. And that's what Malachi is the message. God's not let you down. You're the ones that have let God down. And he is urgent. So it says the burden of Malachi, the oracle. He's coming with a passion in his voice. He's not just going to say, hey, I just want to share a few thoughts with you devotionally today. He is burdened towards his people and he wants them to get this. And because God is, is, is jealous for his glory among the Gentiles, among the nations, and in the vehicle he wants to do that is through his people loving and serving him. So Malachi comes passionately out on the attack against this half hearted, negligent, religious servant of God's people that are thinking just like the pagan world around them. They're corrupt and they're complacent. And he takes this mirror and he shows them in some pretty specific ways to dig in. And those are the three ways to go back with it. Marriage, money, and ministry. I mean, how we, with our relationships, with our ministry life, with, with, and with our, our relationships one with another. And so there's this triangle, this triangle of of, of our thinking and how it affects life, that our thinking, you do what you do because you think what you think because you believe what you believe, right? 
um, about God, yourself, the world, his design. And so our theological, the relationship we have with God affects how we identify with other people and society and things like this. It also shows up in how our economics, you see this in every sphere of life. You know, if someone thinks a certain thing about the nature of humanity and the needs and what what constitutes rights and not rights and work and not work, it shows up in how they vote and where they think monies ought to go and all these different things. And so it is with God's people. And by digging into all these different things and giving some pretty extreme and uh, examples and digging into some very hard passages. I mean, you know, there's usually some of these passages in Malachi are not the ones you usually put on, you know, a, a, a canvas to put on your wall or on your coffee mug, right? Um, God hates divorce. You know, that's usually not on a coffee mug at Hallmark, right? You know, um, they um, or some of the or or you're robbing God by not tithing. You know, you know, let's put that on the wall, right? You know, that it's so encouraging, right? But he digs into some pretty hard things here. But what he's doing is showing us the the people of Israel and us now just how deep our idolatry has gotten. Because when we're doubting God and we're thinking and disillusioned, our flesh is digging in and we're seeing the world and that's getting so deep into us. And so in these six different arguments, we're looking at the final two today, but uh, just remind us that uh, he, had, he talked about their relationship with, with worship and that they had these kind of half-hearted offerings that God was like, hey, I don't want these. In fact, someone just shut the door, shut the whole thing down. I'm not going to take this. And then how that moved to the relationship we have with spiritual siblings with one another, with God's people. And then he gives this specific answer so that skepticism towards God's love had brought this kind of apathy towards their relationships with other people. And, and then he gives a specific, narrows it to a particular about their family. Because really, the church is a family of families. And, and so it goes into these men of Israel have been divorcing their wives and marrying pagan women. And the, now the Bible gives a couple reasons legitimately for divorce, but just that you, you thought these people had more stuff and that they just had this it's kind of this no-fault divorce mentality and they were, they were going at this. And, it, and so he digs in and tells, talks about how God hates this idea of divorce. And he introduced, we talked a little bit last week, that the, the biblical idea of marriage is more of covenant than contract. And we're going to unpack that um, in, the, in coming weeks, but we've got a little bit about that. But then he also applies this to social justice type things in that of how they're treating uh, sojourners in the land and those that uh, uh, laborers not receiving their wages. This idea of social justice, social in- injustice that's happening in society. And I read one person that said this, that it ties it together because really divorce is an act of violence against marriage and a form of social injustice. I mean, divorce is an act of social injustice. And so um, they, they had gotten so bad that they were using um, they, them seeing God's supposed lack of justice as an excuse for their atheism. And we get that way as well. And so then what, when we come to these final two disputes, so we'd seen that their skepticism towards God's love had brought this apathy to other relationships. But now we're going to see that their doubt of God's promises had moved them to cheap worship. And God's going to really confront that. 
And so there's three different sections here, the first dispute, the fifth dispute, sixth dispute, and then the conclusion. So we'll begin reading in chapter 3, verse 6. We'll read through verse 12, and this is the first dispute. So I want to draw your attention to that if you would. Chapter 3 and verse 6, it says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, and you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. Get this, look at your eyes on that. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions or offerings. You were accursed with a curse, and for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, for there may, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out the blessings until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine, and, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. And so he gets on them and he said, so if we, if our main point last week was to let the love of God for you woo you into a wholehearted devotion to God, I would say that the main point I want to point out this week as we conclude Uh, Malachi is to let the unchanging nature of God undergird your trust and confidence in him. So basically Malachi is saying, hey, God loves you and let the love of God woo you into a relationship of wholehearted devotion with him. And God doesn't change. So take that to the bank and be confident and trusting in God. So it's a call to return. He says, return to me. Return to God. Why? I've not changed. I have not changed. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, return to me. And so, we'll go ahead and put this guy on here. Um, return because he hasn't changed. Now, what I love about the, this book is that it's, the whole Bible does this. Before the rebuke, God affirms his electing love towards the people of Israel. And we see that back in chapter 1. I've loved you. And you say, how have I loved you? And he says, because I chose Jacob. You go back to chapter 1 and see this. I chose Jacob and not Esau. The, the reason that they existed was because God... I mean, here they are. They've gone to exile. They've come out. They've had this rebuilt. They're still here. They're going away from God. So the exile and that punishment didn't change their hearts. They're just like their ancestors. They're the same way. They, and, and, so, and, and so they're here. So how do you love us? And he's like, you exist. And you know, I mean, that, there's a little bit of that. You can even do that today, I would argue. This is getting a little bit of end times prophecy. How do you know God's real and the Bible's real and that God's going to keep his promises? Well, the fact that Israel exists today, right? I mean, that's just a... I mean, how many other nations that are that old are still around that have had so many different uh, waves of um, uh, aggression, extermination attempts, and things like this than, than Israel has? And so the fact that you exist, 
And so what made Jacob so special? I mean, so Jacob isn't just a brother with Esau. He's a twin brother with Esau. Esau comes first, but God puts his choosing. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He chose Jacob to be the seed of the Messiah and the one who make up the, the, the uh, chosen people of God. And so what made Jacob so special that God would choose him over Esau? Nothing. It was God's love that was so special. So why have you received Christ as your Savior and not somebody else? Is it because you're so smart to figure out the Romans road? Or No, it was just God quickened you, made you alive, and gave you the gift of repentance and faith. And I mean, there's nothing that we don't boast. I will not boast in anything. It's only Christ. We can't boast in anything but the cross as we sung. And so... The principle is that so so even after that, even after all this, they're still there. And so he's reaffirming and saying, listen, I love Jacob. I cho-. And they're like, OK, I get that. We were your chosen people and then we sinned and then we came back. But, you know, you don't really love us anymore and you're different now. And God says, I ain't changed. I haven't changed. I've st- you're still my people. You're still my covenant people. And he reminds them over and over and over in, in, in Malachi that the covenant that God is still keeping covenant. And so the principle is this, that Jacob and Jacob's descendants can't make God cease loving them just through their sin. That God's love He loves them and it's unchanging for them. And so I would say, Christian, here's where you can have a hashtag me too in a biblical way. That God's love for his people, has he set that upon you. And just like Jacob and the people of Israel, he says, you're my people and I'm not changing in that, that I love you. And so... He, he is, he is we, we, the church, he has set his affection upon us. And Ephesians tells us that he has is, he is, uh, uh, chosen us for adoption. And he also says he has chosen us for holiness, to be blameless before him. So sometimes we can make the gospel and say, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, God loves us, so we can just give these half-hearted uh, offerings and let the gospel be an excuse for that. No, 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 no. The gospel is not the excuse for half-hearted devotion and half-hearted offerings. It is the motivation for total devotion to God. It's not like, oh, that's nice, he loves me, and he said, no, 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 this is why you should be, like, full in. But here's the awesome point, that your sin cannot make God cease loving you. Israel's sin could not make God cease loving them. He loved them, and he doesn't change. So, those of you that would have doubts and despair and discouragement, let the unchanging nature of God undergird your trust and confidence in him. He loves you, and you can't sin your way out of that one. You're in the palm of his hands, and the father that gave him you him is greater than all, and no man can pluck them out of my father's hand can't send your way out of God's love. It doesn't change. And so, are you saying you're preaching that once saved, always saved stuff? Yep. So then he returns to getting on them and this negligence that they have, and he, what he uses the term, the tithe. 
He's really returning back to that begrudging nature that they had towards offerings in chapter 1. That they were given these half-hearted offerings and even the Levites were being part of this and that they were allowing them to do this and they were, being, they were doing it themselves. And so Malachi's method of quickening the conscience goes straight to this jugular of their wallet. And the particular example that he is pointing at here in this tithe is a voluntary offering that they um, gave in thanksgiving to the Lord. Because both in both Testaments, Old and New Testament, giving to God was both mandatory and free will. There were free will offerings in the Old Testament and expected offerings in the Old Testament and in the same way uh, in the New Testament. I mean, we would see this in um, that uh, even in the even though the the gospel radically changes the nature of giving, he says we give out of grace in Corinthians. But he also says that it's an act of obedience. And Jesus would go back and say these things ought you to have done. And so um, it is a fundamental of how Christians practice is by uh, how this affects how we see material needs that we're commanded to give gifts. And and what he says here, he says bring the full tithe into the, verse 10 says, the storehouse. Now, in the, in the temple, there was like the storehouse, and um, uh, I, I don't think you could like argue this dogmatically for the New Testament, but, but I think it kind of makes sense that, if, that the, the local church kind of becomes that, um, that, that. I'm not in a total storehouse, storehouse giving, but like I think that uh, it means that the primary, the main method to which we would give to the Lord in the New Testament would be through, uh, through our local church. So I like to say this. You don't give to your local church. You give through your local church. And so do online giving or put a check in the offering plate or something like that, that knowing that a portion of that is going to help the ministry here, a portion of it's going to missionaries like we read it, we uh, remembered this morning, a portion is going to outreaches that we support, to pregnancy resource centers and things like that, that I'm giving through my local church, just like how Israel would give into the storehouse and it would help the different things going on that God was doing there. Um, so he brings that here. So under grace, we give. We don't pay. You don't pay we don't pay tithes. We give. Um, and I would argue that that was even an Old Testament idea. That Abraham, Hebrews says, gave a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek, who's a type of Christ. And that was 400 years before the law. Um, Leviticus tells us that this tithe is the Lord's. And Malachi here says to bring it in and test God in this. Now, you all know we're, we don't do the plant a seed and God will give you this. If you put this in the check here, you'll get a new car this week. That, but Malachi does says to test God in this and that he'll bless you. Um, and now God gets to define what that blessing and goodness is, right? Sometimes that blessing is, you know, non-material. Sometimes it's non-health. Sometimes it's something. But God, but God gets to do that. And, and, and really, it's a matter of us testing our trust and faith of God. Do we believe you and do you keep your promises? And uh, uh, David Jeremiah tells the story about how this couple comes and says, we're really struggling with this uh, idea of giving and we're not sure we could make that work. And he says, well, OK, how about this? How about you guys just give me what you were going to give, what you were going to donate to the church or whatever? And he says, and I'll hang on to it. And if you ever get to a point that you can't make ends meet, um, uh, just come see me. I'll give it back to you. And they're like, oh, okay, sounds great, yeah, okay. And, and then he says, shame on you that you would trust me to do that but not God. 
you know? And there's a level of saying, hey, God, I'm just trusting you in this. I'm not saying be foolish, and I'm not, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying, God says, I mean, you can read it. Trust God in this. Test me in this. And God puts it there. So the New Testament radically, so, so whatever your position is on that, the New Testament doesn't, it doesn't make uh, tithing the ceiling of giving, but the ground floor, or as I like to call it, the training wheels of giving. And so, um, so that's the fifth argument. And then we come to the sixth argument, beginning in verse 13. Verse 13, it says this, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Remember, all these arguments are God says something and they ask a question. And verse 14 says, and you've said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit for keeping his charge or walking in, in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed and evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And the book of remembrance was written before him and of those who feared the Lord and esteemed the name. And they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. This is God's word. And so he gives this final dispute. He says they're making this audacious claim in verse 13 that it's vain to serve God. And honestly, I think some of us would say we've made that claim too. What is the point of serving God? I mean, what is the point? It just seems like it doesn't turn out. What was the point of sacrificing this or giving that or whatever that? And we get to that point and then we do that. And God speaks here that he is going to make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And he brings this book of remembrance for what he has always had this remnant. And he always will have this remnant. And he brings this into there this, in this um, final dispute. Those that fear the Lord and they gather with one another to remember, and God gives them this book of remembrance, and God makes a point to make a distinction, which he always does, uh, and I think this is even a part, a part of the role of the local church, is even in making this distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And so this is what's going on here, and then we come to the conclusion of the whole book, and I want to make sure we have some time for this. Verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4. So let's consider that together. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb and for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
Now, when we're seeing this coming at, toward, at the end of chapter uh, 3, beginning of chapter 4, you're hearing about this day of the Lord. Um, you're hearing about these things, and this is getting into the realm of things that are predicted for the future in, in prophecy. Now, one thing, I, I, an image I like to have in my head that helps me with this, and, uh, and I'm by far from having everything when it comes to Bible prophecy figured out, is the idea of a mountain range or the peaks of something. So like if you were to come in the front of the church and you were to lean down and look at the back of the pews, it would almost look like the tops of those pews are right behind one another. But there's really like you know, a gap of a couple feet between each one. And, and the same way when you look at a mountain range, you, know, you climb up to a, a, a vista or a ridge and you see these mountains and you might see them. And it looks like they're right behind one another, but there might be five miles of a valley in between the two of them. And so sometimes when, when God is giving us prophecy, he's kind of got this telescope that's looking down into the future, and there's some different mountain ranges, and there may be some gaps between there. So, so Malachi here, they're, they're looking for this coming of Messiah. And, and some of these things are for the second coming of Messiah, and they're missing out that there's the coming of Messiah was in two stages, that he'd come the first time fulfilling the prophecies of being the suffering servant and the Lamb of God, but the, his, the fulfilling the prophecies of coming as the conquering king and the ruler and reigning, reigning from Jerusalem in a, in a, in a, in a, which is yet to come. And so we look at that, and so we're seeing that as we're talking about this, this day of the Lord and the one coming, and I think some of this is even pointing to what we'd see in uh, John the Baptist and his shouting and the messenger that he's talking about and coming to Jesus. But zooming out a little bit, Malachi has emphasized the beginning of his rebukes, the love of God for Israel. But now he's bringing in and talking about a curse that comes. So this is where I wanted to start our service today with considering the goodness and severity of God. And so Malachi comes that there's love of God, but there's a curse of God and there's judgment yet to come. And that's really your choice and your, your, your eternal state. Of, of, of accepting the gift of God's love for you in Christ or uh, following the destruction that's le- that, you're, that is before you. But it shows us here at the end the result of revival. And some of this is yet to come, a future revival of Israel. And some of this is when we, we can see even now, when we turn our hearts and we remember God's love for us and let the love of Christ woo us to a wholehearted devotion of God and we remember the and we let the unchanging nature of God give us confidence in following God. And we return to him in revival in our hearts and renewing our devotion to God. That one of the outworkings of revival or revitalization or whatever that happens or renewal in your life, your marriage, your family. Is going to be seen in this intergenerational reconciliation. Right here, those of you that have interest in youth ministry or children's work or things like that, right here, the end of Malachi, he will turn hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers. That's the goal right there. And we see this is, I think there's an aspect of this that's prophetic, and I think there's also an aspect of this is now, this reconciliation that's intergenerational. Because Corinthians tells us that God has given the church a ministry of reconciliation and in the church we have old and young we have men and women and this there is to be a an aspect of a picture of that in the church of seeing hearts of fathers turn to children and hearts of children to fathers and hearts of old to young and young to old um, and uh, that that 
that there, I think there's something about that in the present age of the church. There's an already and yet a not yet to come. And so um, there's also an anticipation. I love this. So the last three verses of Malachi are kind of an appendix and and it's kind of looking forward to, and I really believe that God kind of put this as a capstone because Malachi is the final book in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And then there's 400 years of silence before Matthew picks up in the New Testament. So he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And he also talks about Moses. My servant Moses in verse 4. Elijah the prophet. And really, Elijah and Moses are kind of the two icons of the... Moses is the kind of the icon of the law. And Elijah is kind of the icon of the prophets, right? So the law and the prophets. Um, I don't want to dive into this too deeply, too, too much to go there. But when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, there are two figures that are there with him. Who are they? Moses and Elijah. That there, I think there is a fulfillment of this, that, the, that, that there is a fulfillment of this in the anticipation of Jesus, that all of this. So, so it's almost like God takes the Old, Old Testament and ends it with, hey, there's this hope of Moses and Elijah. And then we see that picked up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. That they're pointing, this whole thing, this anticipation is going this. But there's also this, that he's talking about what he's going to do in the future so that the ultimate remedy, so here's, what, here's, here's, here's the thing. This is where the gospel comes in. Israel sinned. They've gone away from God. So, so God punishes them in exile. Does that change their hearts? No. They've come back. They've got a new temple, new walls. I mean, they, you know, you know, I mean, you know, Nehemiah, Ezra, insert political pun about border security. Um, and, you know, uh, and so, I mean, you have all this going on. Does it change? No. 80 years later, they're half-hearted and God's upset with them again. And so what's going to, return to me. You need revival. What's going to happen? Is that, is that really going to change? No, they need to look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of this. And actually, and then the real ultimate fulfillment, even for that, I mean, it happens already in our hearts and salvation and in the church, but ultimately it's looking to when the Lord's coming, when he comes to put his final temper, temple, when Messiah rules and reigns um, from his throne ultimately. And he is ruling in now, but it is yet to come that he will make it complete. And that is the ultimate remedy. When we're glorified, when we're with him, when we see, when we know as we are known. And so, a few applications for us. So, the two, two big ideas. Let the love of God for you woo you to a wholehearted devotion to God. Don't let the gospel be an excuse for half-hearted devotion. Let it be the motivation for wholehearted devotion. Don't, don't come in with poor offerings. And by offerings, I mean like your life, um, how you live, what you give, where you go, what you do with your time, everything. I mean, this is the key. I mean, so the key to changing your life and getting on fire for God is, is not a different strategy or a different program. And I, I remember I went looking for this, you know, because I, I go through what has to be some like getting really deep into theology. And, you know, if you learn Greek, then you'll really know God, right? You know, and then you do that and you barely get through it. And then you're like, well, all right, I'm still a sinner, right? And then, oh, I need some deeper life. I need to kind of let go and let God and I need some mystical thing and all this. And then you're like, ah, or I need to get really 
devoted and like, like, uh, like zealous about things. And now you know what it is? You know what the key to revival in your heart, revitalization in a church, is us just falling in love with Jesus and loving God? The key is loving God, not programs and strategies and styles and remodeling and all those things. And they might have a place, but it's, it's, it's loving God, the Lord of hosts. Um, so are you half-hearted in your devotion to God? And, and we would say, then let the love of God woo you to a wholehearted devotion for God. And if you're discouraged and disillusioned and doubting, like we talked about at the beginning of the message today, then to let the unchanging nature of God undergird your trust and confidence in him he is yesterday today forever he is the same god of these stories in the old testament he is this god and i mean in his mind what is yet to come in revelation or the promises in the malachi have already happened he does not change and so don't be half-hearted in your devotion to him well how do you know if you're half-hearted in your devotion to him well, he gave us some, some benchmarks here in Malachi about our relationships with sib- spiritual siblings, our, our family, our marriage, our money. So our worship time, our family time, our, how we spend our money, he, um, he gave us that. So how am I half-hearted? You know, there's um, a, a really practical, just kind of a, going back to the 30,000-foot application is... Um, how are you in being faithful to being with your spiritual brothers and sisters and getting together with them? And, you know, I mean, we don't come to church just to, to hear a sermon. I mean, I am, I mean, especially in this day, I mean, maybe 50 years ago this was different, but like, I know that any of you within 10 seconds on your phone can find much better content preaching wise than you'll get from this pulpit, okay? And I just totally admit that, okay? But you don't, so you're like, well, why do I even come to church? I can just listen to John MacArthur or David Jeremiah or R.C. Sproul or, you know, or whoever your, you know, your guy is. Um, and uh, wh- why not, why don't I do that? I can just, you know, put that on the Apple TV or Roku or whatever you have at your house and prop your feet up and, you know, hope Jason has a good day over there, you know. And, um, but that's not why we come. That's not what the Bible said we come for. The Bible says we come to, 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 to in, in, a, in Hebrews 10, that we come to, to urge one another on. And all those, you can't do those one another's from your couch all the time, right? You got to be together. It kind of necessitates place and time, right? That we, we gather to urge one another on for those things. Um, so are you half hearted in that? You know, I was reading something that Trevin Wax wrote a few years ago. And he was talking about half-hearted worship attenders, half, half part-time worship attenders. And he took a family. It was kind of this, uh, you know, um, uh, th- th- this couple that if you if you took and we some of us might say, well, do you, do you attend church regularly? Oh yeah. And, and then okay, well let's really test it down. Fifty-two weeks in a year. So this couple and went on vacation a couple times a year. And you know how it is. You go on vacation, so you got to make sure you stretch, stretch that out on both weekends, right? So, so, okay, so that's like four to five Sundays. And then there's like you know, the two or three Sundays that you're sick a year. And then there's like a couple Sundays that you know, kids have a project or you got something going on. And then there's you know, a few Sundays that you know, your mother-in-law is coming or the in-laws are coming. So you, gotta make, you have this going on or that going on. And you tallied it up in this one couple. And they were really only in worship about 26 Sundays of the year. 
That's like literally part-time worshipers. Um, and I'm not saying never go on vacation. I'm not saying never visit anybody. I'm saying I would encourage you when you're on vacation to go find a place to worship. I mean, it actually could be a lot of fun. Um, you know, and you can be in some weird experiences and your kids can learn songs they never knew and talk about silly things or whatever. Um, you know, it, it can be fun, but um, don't be a part-timer. And you can deal with that in a couple of different ways. You can you be guilty. You, you can do the guilt trip thing. Well, Hebrews 10, 25, I'm just going to like slap them upside the head. and Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, you know? And everybody feel guilty and make sure you're here next Sunday. Amen. Let's close. You know, and right. Uh, or you can be like, hey, we don't want to be legalistic here. So we're just not going to say anything about it. Right. And this is really where I've kind of come in. And I actually feel guilty about this because I'm, I'm being serious because uh, they gave half hearted. So in the beginning of Malachi, they're giving these half hearted worship to God uh, and the, these kind of trivial offerings to God. And the Levites, or the leaders there, are saying, ah, okay, we'll just roll with it, and we're not going to hold your feet to the fire, or we're not going to kind of take the, the exp- level of expectation up any, and we'll just kind of do that ourselves, right? And that's what they're doing with the offerings. And, you know, and so sometimes we're like, hey, I don't want them to think we're legalistic around here, so I'm not going to talk to anybody, and all right. And then you know what you end up doing? You end up putting people in leadership positions that aren't really consistent attenders and things like that, and then you're like, I'm part, I'm just, we're just like the, the priest and stuff in here. And, um, but, but, so we don't want to do it out of guilt or just by like, hey, free grace. We don't want to, you know, but the best way to respond to this guilt is not some kind of fake grace, but in a reminder of God's love for us, the covenant relationship we have with him, and then that, how that extends together and what the purpose is for us to get together. And so when I think about that, I'm like, where else would I want to be? I mean, this is like I, the people of God brought together by the blood of Christ together, and we're supposed to be one anothering and praying and spurring one another on and encouraging one another. And that might just be you there smiling and shaking somebody's hand that day, but I, where else would I want to be? That's what ought to motivate us to do that. And so we don't go to church out of guilt. We go to church because of grace. Because we're here, we're, we're, all we have is in, in Christ, it's Christ and, uh, and he, his love for me and his unchanging nature. In fact, the future promises of his unchanging nature, that his promises are yes and amen and that the promises are going to come and he's going to bring that kingdom to pass. Um, he, Hebrews even says, don't neglect that, but gather together, spur one another on, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That God's unchanging nature and that his promises in the future coming, that he's going to be, that that glorification and second coming are there, it ought to spur us more on to, you know what? God's not changing. It's going to happen. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to do that. It could show up so in a half-hearted in, in how we're there with church, how we're there with our giving, how we're there with our serving, that we don't just have a half-hearted whatever it is. And you can apply that. There's so many different ways we could apply that. And um, so I hope that these lessons of Malachi will be that God doesn't start out just rebuking us, that he starts out with letting us know. And this is really how the gospel does. It's not just do, it's God did. And so we respond to it. So let God loved you. So Israel, church, I'm not saying Israel's a church, I'm saying people of God, God loves you. So be wholehearted for him. And 
Let his love for you woo you to a wholehearted devotion to him. Don't quit being half-hearted and just half in. Jump in the deep end. And don't be discouraged and despondent that, oh, the promises aren't working, it's not happening. No, he's not changed. He's, he's, you're never going to sin your way out of his love. So be consistent and faithful and trust him. And let's be a people that this week will have this give us some unction that we want to be all in and surrender all to our great God. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for these um, reminders and we thank you for this strong word from Malachi. And Lord, I know there's so much more here and there's so many different aspects and things to, to dig into some of these passages, but we'll just trust you that your word won't return void. And so, Lord, I pray that you would um, help us as we respond now. And before I say amen, just with heads bowed and eyes closed, I want us all to do some responding in our hearts. There may be, just start praying right now. There may be some folks that are like, God, I have been, I confess I have been half-hearted. And I have not been thinking on the love of Christ, whereas I've been so discouraged and doubting and skeptical of your love. God, change me. I'm realizing that you haven't left me. I've been the one that's left you. And maybe someone here that needs to do that for the first time in salvation, that you need to believe that God has promised a Messiah to come and die for you, to make a way for you to be reconciled to this God. And we'd love to talk to you. If While we're singing, if you want to talk to somebody, uh, just slip out or talk to us afterwards. And Christian, you may need to just pray about something right now. God, we thank you that you're unchanging. Lord, help us, help us to grasp that truth that we would be confident and trusting in you because you don't change. Your view of marriage has not changed. Your affection on your church has not changed. And when we sin, and there's some some of us that are very guilty of things today, help us to have the confidence and just reassurance that you love us and you've not left us. Help us to return to you as this passage told us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together as we respond. Stay with us.